Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we'll be exploring the philosophy of mind and in particular, the theory of dual aspect monism. My guest is Peter Todd, who is a Jungian psychotherapist based in Sydney, Australia. He is the author of The Individuation of God. Welcome, Peter. It's a pleasure to be with you once again. It's a pleasure to be with you as well, Jeff. We're talking about some profoundly important subjects, even with respect to their implications of the future of the world. I know many people uh, don't pay a lot of attention to the philosophy of mind, but dual aspect monism has been very important in your thinking for a long time. Uh, so for the benefit of our viewers who may not have uh, heard some of our previous discussions on this topic, uh, let's begin by defining the term. Dual aspect monism in the philosophy of mind is a position, along with ontological idealism, which has developed as a very strong reaction against dogmatic physicalism or metaphysical materialism. And essentially it asserts, to keep the definition fairly simple, that mind is as much a fundamental feature of reality in the cosmos and evolution as is matter itself. So there is a duality with respect to reality with a capital R, not just a monism which, of course, metaphysical materialism posited. Well, how does dual aspect monism differ from uh, what is known as dualism? Well, it is a form of dualism, but dual aspect monism establishes an epistemic split between mind and matter, which emerges via symmetry breaking from an underlying holistic reality known as the Unus Mundus and the jung Pauli scheme, it's uh, an, un an indivisible, undivided reality, one of wholeness, or the implicit order in the thinking of David Bohm, uh, Pavel Pulkane, and Basil Haile and their colleagues. So there are two different variants, uh, although rather similar in understanding of uh, dual aspect monism. But the monism refers, in both cases, to an underlying primordial holistic reality which transcends space, time, and causality. Now, I know what a number of philosophers have, uh, who reacted against metaphysical materialism, uh, consider themselves dualists. Uh, Sir John Eccles, Karl Popper, John Beloff, uh, is another one. And, uh, how, how would you, uh, distinguish dualism? I, uh, from dual aspect monism, well, let me put it this way. It would seem as if dual aspect monism is, is postulating, uh, this third principle that what you've referred to as unus mundus. Or the implicate order in the David Bohm scheme. Mm-hmm. And both, both of those refer to an underlying primordial holistic dimension in which there is not as yet any split between mind and matter. So that in the Jung-Pauli scheme, we could say that the uh, material is approached via quantum locality and the mental via Jung's collective unconscious. 
and they emerge via symmetry breaking or measurement de uh, or decomposition into the epistemic split between mind and matter. There's still the question uh, that puzzles people. How do mind and matter interact with each other? Well, can I refer to a statement by Sir Julian Huxley, who made a glowing endorsement of the work of Teilhard de Chardin, which, whom we'll be talking about later. But essentially, Huxley's position, and that of Teilhard and many, many others since, is that, of course, with the emergence of Homo sapiens endowed with a reflective consciousness, which is the mirror the universe has evolved to reflect upon itself and in which its very existence is revealed, uh, we have now human beings directing the whole future of cosmic evolution, or to quote Niels Bohr, human beings as actors, not mere spectators in the cosmic drama. So it's through our consciousness, through our consciousness and our reflection that we actually get to determine the future direction of evolution, at least on this planet. Which is very important, of course, uh, not only for the future of humanity, but uh, for for the evolution of, of consciousness, perhaps even in a cosmological sense. Uh, although I think it might be a bit much to elevate humans to a cosmological level. But still the question... Um, that every philosopher of mind has to address one way or another is does does mind actually have an influence upon matter or does mind simply you know, go along for the ride? Well, let me quote Wolfgang Pauli on that very question, you see. He referred to the schism between uh, science and religion, which had existed for 400 years, and one of the things he's noted to have said was that the repression of psyche after the Enlightenment uh, had led to metaphysical materialist view of the cosmos, but the repressed would return, perhaps in the form of thermonuclear explosions. And of course, thermonuclear explosions are a result of very intense scientific work on behalf of uh, human beings as scientists. Oh, as to your question about we're elevating human beings too much, whilst I think it's true that collective human consciousness and that of individuals is instrumental in determining the future of evolution and of life on this planet, it needs also, as Jung put it, to be resacralized and to acknowledge a numinous dimension of becoming, otherwise known as uh, God. And, of course, we've talked about Jung's transcendent God archetype. So I think it's not just human beings alone, but human beings co-evolving with God or in a process of co-creative divinization of the world with this transcendent reality that we refer to as God, but not to be confused with the old external interventionist God who is something of a cosmic sadist and well and truly dispatched by Richard Dawkins and others. Yes, it seems as if there's a, a real distinction between the God of religion, the socio-cultural projections that are called God, versus what one might call the God of the philosophers. Yes, and also the God of archetypal psychology, that of uh, Carl Jung and people like David Bohm with his implicate order. So the spiritual dimension is not external to the cosmos, it's I use the term deus implicitus, the transcendent numinous principle is actually implicit in cosmology and evolution and evolving with it and with us. And as I said a moment ago, 
co-evolving and co-engaged in co-creative divinization of the world. Jung was very alarmed about the future of the world and of humanity and spoke, wrote very poignantly of a need to resacralize the world. And I think we as human beings are very much part of that process of attempting to restore a sense of the numinous to the world and perhaps lessening the likelihood that we'll actually destroy it through our addiction to the religion and materialism. Now, earlier, uh, when I asked how mind can influence matter, you used the example of nuclear weapons as uh, a way in which uh, human consciousness affects the physical world. Uh, but I think uh, there are physicalists, materialists, who uh, would say that the physical world operates according to its own laws. Uh, mind isn't even necessary. There aren't any physical theories, even those of Wolfgang Pauli, that have a good definition of consciousness. Uh, so it still begs the question, I think, Peter, of uh, why it is or how it is that our consciousness is able to do the, the simplest things, like I can raise my hand if I choose to do that uh, by an act of will, an act of consciousness. Uh, I would think that dual aspect monism resolves that question uh, because both mind and matter, although they're not reducible one to the other, uh, they are both part of, of this underlying monistic reality, the unus mundus or implicate order. Yes, I absolutely agree. That's why I'm actually suggesting that they're both fundamental features of reality rather than they're just being you know, a materialistic monistic materialistic dogma about the nature of reality which really is unbalanced and i think that's why powell equipped that the danger of materialism was that what was repressed repressed psyche might return in the form of thermonuclear explosions which ironically of course are creations of reflectively conscious human beings People who hold a monistic position, whether it's materialism or idealism, both feel that it's possible in, in the case of materialism to reduce mind to matter, that everything basically boils down to atoms and molecules and neurons. People who are monistic idealists believe that you can reduce what we think of as matter to consciousness because we would have no experience of matter at all if it weren't for consciousness. Uh, but in dual aspect monism, the notion is that neither mind nor matter are reducible to the other. And I, I presume that's the position to which you subscribe. It is, and I think the irreducibility is contingent upon the relationship of complementarity between mind and matter, where both uh, are mutually exclusive and, and uh, necessary, but together necessary for the full explanation of reality, and they're irreducible to one another. So if we introduce complementarity, a la Pauli and Jung, or quantum entanglement, a la the uh, Finnish philosopher Pablo Pulkainen, who asserted that mind and matter uh, are in a quantum entangled state, uh, they are quantum entanglement. They have a, are in a relationship with quantum entanglement. It's impossible then to uh, just get rid of one or the other. Entanglement implies that, and so does complementarity. 
we see complementarity in in many other forms. In physics, we have uh, the uh, complementarity of waves and particles in uh, quantum physics, for example. Uh, we also, people also talk about matter and energy as being complementary to each other, but in, in effect, they're convertible to each other. I think matter and energy, uh, one can be reduced to the other. Yes, but not in the position of dual aspect monism or ontological idealism. Because as I said, if you accept Pauli's definition of complementarity, uh, and also the related notion of entanglement as describing the relationship between mind and matter, they're irreducible to one another and therefore remain both fundamental, fe- both remain fundamental features of reality with a capital R. Let's get into um, the Jungian perspective on this. You talked a minute ago about the importance of God in all of this. Where where does God fit into dual aspect monism? Because uh, I, I don't quite see it. You've got matter, you've got mind, you've got unus mundus. Are, are you suggesting that unus mundus is God? I think my position reflecting that of Jung and David Bohm and his colleagues, and Roger Main, of course, at Essex University, is that there is a transcendent and numinous dimension of evolutionary becoming, which we can to which we can apply the label God, but needing to hold in mind the uh, easy tendency to fall into conflating that notion of a Deus implicitus and God implicit in cosmology and evolution with the old external interventionist God, which has been an irrelevant hypothesis since Newton. Where would this uh, deity fit in? Well, I think it is implicit in cosmology and evolution and manifests itself, as Jung put it, in the intersection of the divine and the human in the notion of continuing incarnation of the divine in and through humanity. I mean, there's no doubt that human beings going right back into uh, the earliest appearance of our species has had a fascination with the divine or with the numinous, that there is something more to reality than that which we ourselves embody, and indeed even this world. I'm going to push you a little bit on this, if I may, Peter, because I'm I'm, pos- I'm puzzled. I uh, It would seem to me that uh, if you're talking about dual aspect monism, you have mind, you have matter, you have unis mundus, and, and you're suggesting that God is implicit in all of these. Well, I should perhaps explicate unus mundus to refer to the Jung's collective unconscious and the realm of the archetypes as cosmic ordering and regulating principles. And one of the archetypes that is manifest in all of the world's great wisdom, traditions and religions, and now in an emerging evolutionary panentheism, is that of a god who is... uh, in fact, a transcendent archetype, which is not actually fully knowable by human beings. It ultimately peters out, as Roderick Main suggests, in mystery. So that no number of primordial images of God can actually exhaust the reality of the transcendent, numinous uh, reality that we refer to as God. Yeah, because surely you would agree that the images of God are not the same as God. Absolutely not, and that's why Roderick Main made that very good distinction, you see, between the primordial 
images of God, archetypal images of God, which are manifest in dreams and humanities, various religious traditions, and the ultimately unknowable transcendent God archetype, which is, as an archetype, is timeless, eternal, and coextensive with the cosmos. That's not the God that people go and pray to in church on Sunday. <laughs> it, it seems to me, Peter, that... Uh, what you're describing is consistent with uh, the vision of Spinoza, who I understand was also another dual aspect monist. Uh, he, Spinoza saw God, I think, as uh, being the the unity that existed uh, out of which the universe itself was created. Yes, I agree. Spinoza, of course, and the work of Pauli and Jung and David Bohm, is the prototypical dual aspect monist thinker, although he's sometimes been confused as being an idealist. I think that is an error. He was a prototypical dual aspect monist, and his notion of God, though he was writing long before Jung and archetypal depth psychology, or our having any knowledge of the archetypes, unconscious archetypes, uh, his, clo his definition for his time was fairly close to Jung's notion of the God archetype manifest to us in dreams and symbols, but not reducible to those symbols. Mm -hmm. Of course, Spinoza lived in an era, unlike Jung, where, where we didn't have any of the insights of quantum physics. So uh, he was working in the 17th century, and I suppose uh, all philosophy is uh, disadvantaged by what the historical circumstances in which it appears. Do you foresee that uh, those same kinds of limitations w are affecting us today? Limitations, meaning? Limitations of history, that uh, we're trying to discuss such large questions of cosmology and philosophy, psychology, and uh, even quantum physics, uh, but we're limited by the knowledge that's available to us now in the uh, 21st century. Well, a number of people have noted, and I'm, I'm in total agreement with them, that the quantum revolution and its emphasis upon holism and non-locality was the beginning of the end for philosophical atomism characteristic of the classical physics of Newton, which, of course, was the only model of acceptable science right through the 19th century and well into the, into the 20th, and in fact, it persisted beyond the quantum revolution until, in more recent years, the implications of that and the importance of holism are actually being more acknowledged, where holism, of course, again, involves uh, both mind and matter, or consciousness and matter. Do you see God as distinct from consciousness and matter, or uh, transcendent uh, of uh, our uh, space-time reality, or do you see God as being imminent, or both? I see God as being both imminent in evolution and cosmology and within us, but also there's something more which we refer to as the transcendent nature of God or the God archetype, which is not completely knowable by human beings with their finite intelligence and ego consciousness. 
And is there anything more particular that can be said about Unis Mundus? How, how does Unis Mundus, for example, uh, how, how does it differentiate itself from mind or matter or God? Well, Unis, Unis Mundus in the Jung Pauli framing is analogous to the Implicadora, but it's act, it is actually a primordial holistic reality in which mind and matter have not yet emerged in, in a kind of epistemic split, which occurs via symmetry breaking of the original primordial holistic reality of Unus Mundus, which means one world, or in the Bohm scheme, the Implicadora, where the epistemic split occurs via unfoldment of an ultimately enfolded Implicadora. Now, you've used a number of terms that I'd like to define for our viewers. Let's start with uh, the epistemic split. What, what do you mean by that? That just simply is a fancy philosophical way of talking about uh, a differentiated understanding that mind and mind and matter are separate aspects, dual aspects of reality. I wouldn't worry too much about the epistemic because it simply is a term for, uh, for knowledge. Uh, symmetry breaking. How is symmetry breaking related to the epistemic split? Well, it's via symmetry breaking or measurement that the unus mundus, uh, with its, with the collective unconscious and the archetypes, actually becomes knowable to us as mind and matter, as distinct aspects, dual aspects of this underlying primordial reality. It sort of reminds me a, a, a little bit of uh, the parallel between uh, how a fertilized egg starts out as a single cell and then it splits, it becomes two, and it splits and splits and splits until you have an organism such as a human being like you and me with a hundred trillion cells in our body and 200 different kinds of cells and many organs uh, interacting with each other uh, all, usually in a perfect manner. And it's quite a mystery for many people as to how that very complex organism of the brain with all those trillions of neurons and synaptic connections could actually give rise to a mental reality such as reflective consciousness or the notion that consciousness, or in Eccles' terms, the self, Eccles and Popper's terms, that the self could possibly act upon the brain or even direct the future of cosmic evolution, as Niels Bohr believed. I mean, I'll refer back to his famous quote. You see, Niels Bohr, uh, one of the founders of the quantum revolution, actually stated that human beings are actors, not spectators in the cosmic drama. Well, what does that term actors actually mean? It means that we actually act upon the world, that action is mediated by reflection in conscious thought. It's through our actions that we direct the future of cosmic evolution, at least on this planet. Well, on, on this planet uh, right now, we are going through uh, a major extinction. I think some people call it the sixth extinction uh, that's occurred on the history uh, in the history of this planet, and it's an extinction largely caused by our own behavior. So certainly, we are affecting planetary evolution uh, in a very negative way right now. In a very destructive way, and I think that is why Jung and the post-Jungians and many uh, 
philosophers with a theological bent like Roderick Maine at Essex, for example, are calling for the resacralization of the world, albeit, for instance, in some such form as an evolutionary panentheistic theology. Because if the world is resacralized, if we really respect it rather than seeing it as a resource to be exploited, there's perhaps a lesser likelihood that we'll actually end up destroying it through consumption, let alone through thermonuclear war. I've got to ask you to define another term, if I may, panentheistic. Panentheistic is simply a term made up of uh, three Greek words, really. Pan meaning all, en meaning in, and theism deriving from the Greek word theos meaning God. That means literally God in all. And although I will refer to this later in our interview on Tayar, the very last entry in his diary on Maundy Thursday, 1955, was on Parsi Panta Theos, that God may be all in all. All in all. A, a nice summer, summary of panentheism. It, it suggests a, a sense of uh, everything is permeated by the divine. Yes, everything is permeated by the divine. And uh, we are intersected by the divine, at least in panentheistic theology, through a process of continuing incarnation. And even Master Eckhart was onto that in the Middle Ages, the, the mystic Master Eckhart was onto this notion of continuing incarnation. It suggests that people who hold this view, like most mystics, come to uh, an understanding of the unitary nature of reality as a whole, and, and the idea, for example, that uh, humanity is one whole, that, that all humans of every race, creed, ethnicity, and religion are uh, essentially one, where all uh, aspects or cells in the body of uh, this great human or humanness, this, I think in, in Kabbalah they refer to to it as Adam Kadmon, the, uh, the one being of all humanity. And an aspect of the mystical visions of the acknowledged mystics, as well as people like Tayar, who we'll be discussing, is that of evolving a sense of the interconnectedness and sacredness of all human beings and of the ecosystems that support them. I think it's very important. It's one of the uh, conclusions I come to in practically every interview I do. We, we come around to that issue of oneness, and yet I run up against people all the time who... Uh, they may theoretically embrace that issue, but in practical terms, they don't like the idea of having to consider themselves at one with certain other people. Sometimes it's the Catholics, sometimes it's the Jews, sometimes it's the rich, sometimes it's the poor. Uh, but it seems as if uh, there's a natural tendency in this world of duality in which we live, that people are seeking uh, an enemy. And the very notion of having a, an enemy uh, strikes me as antithetical to the uh, theology that you're espousing. Am I correct? Yes, I agree. And I think there's a grave danger implicit in unconscious projection of archetypal shadow qualities onto other peoples and groups and demonizing them and therefore feeling entitled somehow to eliminate them or to usurp their their countries, their resources, 
you know, I might say that in this context, a lot of these differences are based upon a quasi-religious devotion to various ideologies and ideological differences, even nationalism, which I see, of course, as quite anachronistic in a world with an internet, and we're talking thousands of miles apart, information travelling at the speed of light. I mean, it's very difficult not to see such a world in holistic terms. We are so interconnected, even through such discussions as this. And yet, uh, I talk to people, um, for example, in my own psychotherapy practice, who who have an abhorrence for crime, for evil, for murder, rape, incest. Uh, these these things seem horrible, and the people who commit these acts seem horrible. It seems like it's part of human nature not to want to have anything to do with people of that sort. And in fact, I generally don't want to have anything to do with, with the people who dislike <laughs> people of, of, of various sorts. Uh, so it seems to me that um, in order to embrace wholeness, uh, one has to struggle with the, uh, I think the philosopher Karl Popper put it this way. He said, he said, if you want to have a tolerant society, you must be intolerant of intolerance. And that seems very paradoxical to me. I agree. And of course, as you'd be well aware, uh, Popper not only colluded with Eccles in that book called the, the Self and Its Brain, An Argument for Interactionism, he also wrote another book called The Open Society and Its Enemies. Yes. And my, yes. Under, my understanding of what, what that's getting at is the dangers implicit in unconscious yet collective archetypal projection onto others of shadow qualities which again, can be used to rationalize their elimination and destruction, and at the very least, the consumption of their resources for our own uh, greed and gluttony. Well, do you see dual aspect monism or even the theology that you're developing for the third millennium as uh, more than an antidote, but actually a, a tool that can be used in, in some way to uh, elevate the condition of humanity uh, away from this sort of unconscious projection? Well, I think one of the functions of programs like yours, which I mark greatly, is their potential for disseminating by the global internet and interviews like this and with many other eminent people, theologians and otherwise, of actually making conscious using the internet, which Tao referred to as the nervous system of the noosphere, to actually promote this understanding, this mystical understanding of the holism of the world and the interconnectedness and sacredness of all beings and the ecosystems that support them that I referred to earlier. Now, I agree with you about uh, the Internet being the nervous system of the newosphere, but Tear died in 1955 before uh, anybody had even conceived of the Internet, I, I believe. Uh, so I'm, um, I guess he was probably simply referring to radio, television, electronic communication. At that stage, he was, yes. I've often thought of that, that we are building uh, an electronic network that is now encompassing the entire planet. We're, uh, it, it's like it's an extension of our nervous system. One might even say that we're constructing a new organism. 
Well, a famous writer, Marshall McLuhan, as you may well know, referred to media as the extensions of man. So I think what you were saying there is that the development of uh, ever more refined ways of communicating with people across the planet, using interviews like yours as a medium to help facilitate the recycralization of the world, is profoundly important. And I hope you see the value of your own work in promoting ideas of holism and a need to uh, acknowledge the sacredness of all people as uh, an extremely valuable asset to humanity. I think your contribution is uh, magnificent in that respect. Well, thank you, Peter. And I uh, would say the same about your contribution. Uh, but it strikes me that the the creation of the, this electronic network, which now pretty much encircles the entire planet. Uh, somebody could be uh, at the South Pole and interacting with us right now. We're out in outer space in the International Space Station. They could be communicating uh, with us right now in a conversation. Uh, I interviewed one scientist who said this is the New World Order. In effect, and uh, but I can tell you, I have many viewers who, if you use the phrase "new world order," they think it's diabolic. They think that it's some sort of a, an imposition by the planetary elite for the purpose of um, controlling individuals, forcing values upon them that they don't want, and forcing them into a, a, a consumerist culture that uh, is damaging to the whole planet. I quite agree, and I think that highlights the danger of totalitarian, authoritarian systems of thought, uh, whether it be, you know, the dialectical materialism of Marx, which dehumanizes people, culminating in, in the impersonal, with no sense of the divine or the sacred, or any sense of warmth and attraction, or even, for instance, some of our, you know, our theological systems, you know, I am, was raised as a Catholic and am still a very, a very progressive Catholic, although I'm probably viewed with some suspicion from Rome. But I'm appalled by what the Roman Catholic Church has done through the centuries to people who were dissidents rather than promoting love and compassion and interconnectedness or even mysticism. Mm -hmm. There's a huge discrepancy between the mystics and saints and some of the power-hungry uh, authoritarian bureaucrats at the uh, at the helm, as it were. In, in fact, I sometimes wonder if it's even possible for a person to live a mystical life and also uh, pursue political or economic power. I think it's difficult to live a mystical life if one is actually addicted to an ideology, quasi-religious ideology, that promotes consumerism, whether it be, uh, you know, Marxism or Catholicism or any other ideology. You see, Jung made a very astute statement. I, I never cease to be, never cease to uh, be in awe of his intuition. And he actually said that religious dogma is fossilized, dead, mystical experience. Religious dogma tends to kill off the possibility of having any authentic mystical connection with the divine or with the world. Theology has been all too much in the head, too cerebral. 
Well, it's rather paradoxical in, in the sense that pretty much every religious dogma was initiated by uh, an individual who I think we would agree had authentic uh, mystical experiences. Yes, yes. And they are, they are very important sources to read to, for us to understand the nature of mysticism. But unfortunately, what the church and churches have tended to do, again, you see, is to almost deify the mystics or their teachings and to fossilize the, the experience into dogma to be believed rather than experience, to be experienced in the heart, as it were, with feeling and emotion. It's sort of like uh, talking about the wonderful state dinner I had yesterday. <laughs> yes. And trying to describe to people who wouldn't have any idea what that meant, uh, describe the state dinner in terms that there is, for which people have little comprehension. Indeed. Well, coming back to dual aspect monism, uh, when we first sat down this evening, it's evening for me at least, I think it's morning for you, uh, you talked about how important this discussion is, that uh, the, an understanding of dual aspect monism could really help to liberate people, I suppose, from the, the constraints uh, that one might even say the bondage that people are in who, who are addicted, as, as you've suggested, to other viewpoints, particularly materialism. I absolutely agree, and I think that that addiction, that quasi-religious devotion to various materialist ideologies is a menace to the planet, and it needs to change with the help of programs like yours, which raise consciousness. Well, and there's also the question of, of addiction not to materialist ideologies, but to... Um, to religious ideologies as as well that have lost touch with the uh, authentic mystical inspiration that gave birth to them in the first place. Absolutely. I mean, they have, in the name of uh, religious ideologies, both of Catholic and Protestant form, people have been subject to inquisitions, persecuted and killed off in much the same way that in the name of the dialectical materialism of Marx. Dissidents have been killed off in certain countries of the world today by the million. I mean, under Mao alone, as you probably know, 40 million people were, were murdered for thinking differently, for dissident thoughts. It doesn't really matter much what the ideology is. It's the quasi-religious devotion to it, almost as the numinous reality itself that is the problem and that justifies people in persecuting others for, for being dissidents. So if dual aspect monism were to become universally accepted, it would face the same risk. It, it could become a tool in the hands of authoritarian leaders uh, used f uh, to persecute and punish people. Well, I would certainly hope not. And the reason I believe that it prob that probably would not happen was that if you take dual aspect monism seriously, it actually encompasses both mind and matter and the anima mundi, the world soul of Jung. So there's an implicit degree of sacredness in the ideology when taken to a deeper level that might be a bit of a safeguard about it, safeguard against it being used in the name of, uh, as an ideology to uh, persecute people.
But I think Popper was right. We need to be be very careful of any totalitarian system of thought. They create closed societies rather than open ones. I would agree with Popper about that, but I do take issue with Popper about uh, if if you want to be uh, tolerant, then you must be intolerant. I, I have trouble with that. I tend to think that a little bit of tolerance of intolerance uh, might be a healthy thing as opposed to intolerance because that just creates, you know, people knocking their heads against each other. The way I'm understanding what you're saying is the tolerance of the human freedom to have dissident viewpoints, to have differing ideas rather than being persecuted for those ideas or as to happen with Paul Teilhard, whom we'll be discussing shortly, you know, being silenced by the Vatican for daring to introduce any concept of evolution to the theology of the day. Which suggests that uh, dual aspect monism, certainly while it has a, a connection to the sacred, so did Catholic ideology. The Catholic Church has always been uh, supposedly s- centered on the, the sacred person of Jesus Christ. And, and yet, in the name of that sacred being, uh, atrocities have been committed. And uh, great thinkers such as Teilhard, such as Galileo, have, have been persecuted by the church. Why, why would dual aspect monism have a different fate? Whereas again, I think it really means, if you take it seriously, acknowledging the mind, the soul, the sacredness of other human beings, that's built into the ideology, particularly when you take it deeper, uh, as Roderick May and Jung and others have, into the uh, numinous and spiritual. You see, I prefer to think of evolution as a process, or in cosmology, as processes of numinous becoming in which we partake and participate almost as a form of communion, Eucharistic communion, figuratively speaking. If we use dual aspect monism in that way, there's less danger of it being used to uh, silence dissenters. And of course there are dissenters who call themselves ontological idealists, and I think both groups really need to be a little more tolerant of the others. You know, on this program I try to be tolerant of materialists and physicalists and conventional dualists. One of the things that I've come to understand in exploring the philosophy of mind, which was never part of my own academic training, uh, is that pretty much every philosopher who ventures into this area comes up with their own unique twist or unique version of so I suspect that, uh, for example, the uh, implicate order of David Bohm is not exactly uh, identical to the unus mundus of Jung and Pauli, or uh, the, I'm, I'm not quite sure how Teilhard would have phrased it. Uh, uh, but I think each of these thinkers, including Spinoza, uh, has a slightly different version of, of the theory. Absolutely individual variations. And uh, Tehard, who we're going to be talking about uh, soon, I think he added a unique twist to it himself when he talked about the Omega point, that there was something driving all of uh, the entire universe toward a, a final point, the Alpha leading to the Omega. Yes. 
the Yamaka point or divine focus of mind for all human beings. I don't know whether you want to get on to talking about Teilhard just now, but uh, certainly I'm happy to cover that ground with you when we move on to him. Yes, well, this may be a good uh, point to let our uh, viewers know that we will be having a more in-depth discussion about uh, Teilhard. It'll be uh, released for the first time about 10 days after this program uh, is released uh, for the first time. So, uh, Peter, on on that note, let me thank you for this discussion. I know we've... uh, covered many, many uh, points far afield from the original focus on the philosophy of mind. And uh, yet, for me, that's where the energy was, in a way. So I'm glad we did that. Yes, and I think it's a bit unusual to introduce into the philosophy of mind concepts from quantum physics which are directly applicable to understanding the relationship between mind and matter concepts such as complementarity and entanglement which imply that neither is reducible to the other whereas for 400 years you know the only permissible view of reality was that it was utterly materialistic and any notion of mind psyche or soul was to be regarded as with suspicion or handed over to the uh, theologians We're entering into a new era, I think, where uh, the whole question of consciousness, the whole question of of God and spirituality is now open to scientific investigation. And rightly so. Science itself is a pathway to the divine. Well, Peter Todd, uh, once again, thank you for being with me. My pleasure.